Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spear with another edition of the Survival Podcast As always, one man feel the changing world and changing times And the things that we can all do to live a better life If times get tough or even if they don't, dictated is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, from my personal mobile studio, 2006.5, get a diesel TDI. Today is episode 322 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, November 20th, 2009. It is disgusting outside. Let me tell you, folks, this is one of the grossest weather days we've had in a long time. It's 60 degrees. Great clouds, rain, nasty trucks kicking dirt up off the highway. Um, just one of the um, the more disgusting drives I've had to do lately. So, if I seem distracted at any point, it's probably because I'm trying to avoid um, death by being impaled into the rear or front end of a giant semi-truck. So I'll apologize in advance for any of that. Today's show, we're going to keep going over some of these fundamentals of modern survivalism and digging deeper into them. We're going to talk about land ownership today, a little bit differently than we've ever talked about it before. I've done a lot on finding land. I'm going to talk to you about the psychology of land ownership today. I'm going to talk to you about why it's so valuable, why it's such an investment, and in a way you've probably never heard before. So that's going to be the main subject of today's show. But let's get on with the housekeeping, because I do have some extra stuff today, because we've got a lot of stuff going on. Number one, please remember that we were nominated for Podcast of the Year in the general category at podcastawards.com. You have between now and the end of the month, okay, to vote for the Survival Podcast. You can vote once a day, and you have to verify your vote, so you have to put in a good email address. Please do that. I want to win this thing. Um, I think we're a dark horse in this. We came in at the very end. This thing's open all year. We didn't even know about it until like two weeks before the nominations closed, and we got in at the very end because you guys rock, so help me win. Alright, next, sponsors of the day. I'm welcoming a new sponsor today. These guys rock. I'm telling you right now to go buy their DVD because I am giving free consulting to the owner, Marjorie. And one of the next things I'm going to tell her to do is raise the price on her DVD by about five bucks because I think it's way underpriced for what she's, uh, what she's delivering. The, the company is backyardfoodproduction.com. Their flagship pro- product is a uh, 110 minute DVD and it is amazing what you'll learn from this DVD by seeing what this family has actually done. Check them out today, backyardfoodproduction.com. And if you uh, if you have somebody in your life that's into farming and gardening and permaculture techniques and things like that, this is a freaking fabulous Christmas gift. I am so excited to have a new small business like this that's built this thing from the ground up themselves and then documented and made something out of it. When I talk about entrepreneurship and doing something that really contributes to society, This is what I'm talking about. Check these folks out. Next, Tea Party Silver. What can I say? Beautiful coins, solid investment, good pricing, good shipping, personal care from the owner. What more do you want for your silver investing needs? And again, silver coins, they are a great thing to give the kiddos around the the holidays. Uh, Instead of a plastic toy that will be worthless in two or three weeks. Uh, My wife was going to meet my niece. 
at her little birthday party, and she was going to go to Kroger or somewhere and get a balloon for us. Don't get her a balloon. I went and got one of the Tea Party silver coins out. I got her the one with the, the Morgan head and the big eagle on the back. I said, give her this. And she's like eight years old now, you know? And my wife's like, okay. She flipped out, man. She thought it was the greatest thing in the world. When she came over Sunday after church to come see me, I was out working in the garden. She ran up, gave me a big old screaming neck hug, and she was so excited because it was the first time anybody had ever given her anything like that, folks. They will understand if you make them understand. So Tea Party Silver for yourself and for the kiddos at the holidays. Next, forum. Join the forum. If you didn't join the forum yesterday, then you're not going to be able to play the forum members' appreciation contest today. We were kicking around how to do a drawing in the, in the forum, and I thought this morning, Jack, you're being dumb. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm doing a foreign mem- forum members' appreciation contest today. I am going to give away three, read this, three... Me, uh, member Support Brigade memberships for free. One-year uh, memberships to the MSB for free. To anybody that joined the forum as of yesterday, we had 4,000 members cross very late last night. This is how you play, just like the normal listener appreciation contest, but you have to be a forum member, and if you're not a forum member now, you're out this time. Maybe you can do it the next time we do this. Send me an email. Put contest in the subject line and nothing else. That will filter it for Outlook for me. In the email body, give me your name, your forum handle, and your email address. That's all I need this time because I'll set you up and email you your things if you win. I'm going to make this very fair. I had somebody say, no fair last time because this is Hawaii and I didn't get to win. She only lost by like 10, 10 numbers out. But uh, this is going to be anybody's going to be have a shot at this because, again, you've got to be a forum member to play. So a lot of people can't even play because they didn't join the forum. All right? So send me that information. I will give it away to respondent number 25, 75, and 200. Trust me, folks, everybody has a shot at this. This one will run into the weekend. 25, 75, and 200. Those people that are forum members that, that send me that email have a chance to win. You send the email, jack at, at the survivalpodcast.com. Do not use a contact form. Email jack at the survivalpodcast.com. There we go. MSB. Let's talk about that real brief. If you think this show's worth more than 10 cents an episode, or 20 cents an episode, gee, I haven't cut the price that low, have I? 20 cents an episode, consider joining the Survival Podcast Supporting Members Brigade. You get exclusive content available only to members. And as I go into next year, I just leaked something that's going to happen when I said 10 cents, but I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. You'll have to think about that one. All right. With that, I'm ready to rock on and start talking about today's subject. Um, I know I went a little bit long in the uh, housekeeping, but hey, I'm giving away stuff, right? So this is this is in typical housekeeping. And you know what? We're only going to have a chance to vote for this uh, this podcast awards for another week. So let's do it. Let's knock it out. Let's win. But let's go on and talk about land ownership today. And let's talk about how special it is that we have the ability still to own land here. The, the, the land is not nationalized. I need to take you on one of my time travel trips that I do from time to time right now to help you understand how valuable what we still have left for us today is and how to think about it differently so you understand what I mean in my, my modern survival philosophy and my ten principles. By ten tenants. And in one of them I say that the ownership of land is true wealth. True wealth. 
I, I, I didn't like just randomly let those words fall out. They were chosen for a reason. It's true wealth. And, and here's where that comes from. I want you to take yourself back to really a recent time in history. We could go all the way back to colonial times and say many of the same things. But this was true, let's say, 1870, 1880 in that realm. 1870, 1880, a lot of people don't realize most of the rest of the world was still living underneath royalty and feudal systems. There were still kings and dukes and duchesses and lords and ladies and archdukes. There was still a caste system. There still is in a lot of places. But I mean, in a lot of the developed world, we had just gone through the war between the states, which I, I really refused to cause the, call the Civil War, because the, the war between the states was not a civil war. A civil war is a fight for control of a nation. That's not what the Civil War was. We won't go there today. But that had just ended. I mean, it was ten years. 1870 was five years. America was still considered to be, by most of the quote-unquote civilized world, a third world nation. We didn't build the interstate system the way that it is today until after World War II, to put that in perspective for you. The railroad had bridged much of the nation together. There wasn't a whole lot of need to always use a covered wagon, but boy, that was still going on to settle the West. But in England, the king still had a lot of control. Had given up quite a bit, but it wasn't all gone. And there was still a definite caste system. Hell, England still has one today, but not to this level. In England, if you were a farmer in 1870, you were still basically a serf. You didn't own your land. It wasn't even possible for a commoner. And now, let's go back to like 1820, when we really had people coming here. After the War for Independence. You really were a serf then. In 1820, that sounds like a long time ago. It's not that long ago, folks. About about 200 years, less than 200 years. Humans have been in civilizations for at least 10,000, if not more years. You're only talking 200 of it. Everybody still lived on land back then that was actually owned by the king and ferreted out among his minions, and his minions were the lords, the ladies, the knights, the dukes, the duchesses, what have you. And the serf would kill themselves, literally work themselves into the ground, farming the land, raising livestock, what have you, living in their little thatched huts. And then all of that production that they produced, they would get some small portion of it for themselves as their payment. And the rest of it would go to the duke or the duchess or the, you know, what have you. Who would then have it go to market by somebody else who was a serf, who would sell it, get some small piece. But basically it was impossible to own land. If you were a serf, if you were a commoner, you couldn't do it. It wasn't legal. Do you know in Mexico right now you still can't own land? No one owns land in Mexico. It's leased for 99 years from the state. But at least you could have it and control it. But that's how it works in Mexico. It's a lease. It can't be handed down for generation to generation. So you're a serf now in medieval England or medieval Europe. Well, even medieval, right? Early 1800s. You're killing yourself. You're working yourself into the ground. You're dealing with diseases and dirt. There's no real plumbing. There's no real electricity. It's a horrific place. 
If the crops don't come this year, you'll starve. When they do come, most of it goes to, to your master. And then it's your master. You're living like a slave. Now, you hear about this place called America. And if you go there, no one's going to give you jack diddly crap. You're going to go there and be dirt poor. Well, you look around and go, that's not much different. And you might get there and you might not have much. You might have to sell everything you do have scraped up to own just for passage to get there. But once you get there... You know, maybe you can find a job somewhere working for a local merchant in a town. Or maybe you can live in a little hut somewhere or some little shack somewhere for a year or two and save every penny that you earn and just spend enough money to feed yourself. But after that, you can build up enough money to buy some supplies and you can pretty much head west into this this vast undiscovered wilderness in this land called America. And for very little money, or simply for making a claim, you can go out and grab 20, 30, 40 or more acres of land and it's yours. And you own it. And you can leave it to your children and they can leave it to their children and they can leave it to their children and they can leave it to their children. And you're told that whatever you produce from that land will 100% belong to you. If you sell it, you will keep the profit. It is all yours. People say, what about income tax? Well, we had a little tiny income tax during the, during the war between the states. And uh, it was little. It was like 3% for people that made what was considered quite wealthy back then. And as soon as it was over, the, the war was over, and some of the debt was paid, it went away. So except for that period in time, there was no income tax of any note up until about 1913. So all through this time, when this feudal system was still in place around the rest of the world, you actually, if you sold all your crops and made money, you kept all your money as a farmer in America. And you owned your land and you owned a production, you could leave it to your children. What kind of deal does that sound like to that guy? See, he got it. That man understood that it was worth every sacrifice that was necessary to get that piece of land and make it their own. To carve it out of harsh wilderness. And you know what? When he went out and laid claim to 40 acres and it was largely treed, and he needed to make a lot of it in the field so he could plant them, he didn't have a chainsaw. It wasn't... Right? It was him and maybe a son, or maybe two families would go together so the two men could work together on adjacent pieces of land and form those early communities. And they're out there with crosscut saws and mules and horses. I read a story one time. I'll see if I can find it for you guys. It was about, and this, was, this took place in the late 1800s up in Canada. And it was a story from a man about how when he was a, a little boy, his family built their root cellar underneath the kitchen. And the kitchen hadn't existed yet. And now they basically created a, a scoop and had this mule drag this scoop over and over and over again just to get a hole into the ground. And then once they got the hole into the ground, they took all these pieces of willow stick and they made pegs and they put all the pegs into the holes. And then they mudded the walls up with a mud mixture and then they set a fire down there to harden it. And then they built the kitchen over top of it and that's how they built a root cellar. 
pretty freaking cool, isn't it? When you think about how much work that took. That took over a year for that one project to happen. And every single family member, including very little kids, worked on it. They brought in stone for the flooring. And these kids had, like, one of the first, I guess, you know, wagons. The little wagons you pull a kid. One kid pulls another kid in. And they would go back and forth all day long dragging slate rock back to help with this construction project. It's amazing what people did for land. Why do I spend this much time on it? Why do I talk about it today? Because you have to understand that that tells you how valuable land ownership is. And we've been lulled into a false sense of stupidity in our country today where we don't see it that way anymore. Today, what's valuable real estate? A little condo in a trendy area of Chicago where I can walk to shops and boutiques and spend $9 for a cup of coffee. That's valuable real estate today. A McMansion in some freaking suburban night hellhole where 90% of the housewives that live there and don't work, the best way you could describe what they do for a living is they're professional shoppers. And women, I don't want to offend you. I'm not saying anything about women here. I'm talking about those people. And I see them. I see them in Frisco. I see them in Plano. I see them in parts of Arlington. I go out to grab a bite to buy the lunch in the middle of the day, and I see them with their two kids. I see them as soon as the temperature gets down to about 62 degrees. They dress like they're in Aspen in January with uh, $1,000 coats and boots and suede. And they're running around spending money all day long in a $60,000, $70,000 SUV. And these are the same people now that are in trouble because Dad lost that big multi-six-figure job, and they can't afford that McMansion anymore. But some of them are still out there. They're still shopping. And that valuable piece of real estate to them is a tenth of an acre with a giant house that almost the, house, the footprint of the house almost covers the entire land. You look out one window, you see your neighbor. You look out the other window, you spit, see your neighbor. You could spit out your window and hit the wall of your neighbor's house. That's, that's valuable real estate today. Folks, that's not the way that it is. That's a, to me, it's an attack on land ownership. The way that we've that we've changed the demographic in America of what people consider to be valuable pieces of property. If you think about it, the reality is that people should be living further and further apart from each other today than at any time in history. In the 1800s, when you took that wagon and you went west and you homesteaded on 40 acres, if you needed something, you had to hitch up the team and uh, to the cart and go into town, and that might have been an all-day thing just for one trip to town and back. Now you could live 40 miles away and a trip to town and back could take you less than two hours. But yet we live on top of each other more now than ever before. We've been sold on this because this is the greatest thing in the world for government. Think about it. We can have people with little rural homesteads, largely unsettled land, still in very rural type situations. Reasonable property values as people are spread out like that. And you have a thousand acres of land, and how much tax can the government get out of that thousand acres in property taxes? Not that much. Not if it's spaced out like that, not if it's not if it's left largely undeveloped, not if there's not a lot of business there, not if there's a lot of self-sufficient people there that are providing for themselves and don't really need them. But you take that same thousand acres and you build a house on every tenth of it, and you put city street infrastructure in there, and it becomes a gold mine for the city. 
Let's think about it. The city doesn't pay for the houses to be built. In fact, they get money for permits for the houses to be built. They sort of pay for the utilities, but then they make money on that forever. And there's still a lot of the, the, the utility infrastructure has to be put in by the developer. Then once the homeowner moves into the house, the homeowner buys the house, takes care of the house, is responsible for the house. But the city and the county and the, and the, and the state get to send the homeowner a bill forever for existing in that house. And they get to charge them huge tax bills now. We have people in New Jersey that are sitting on quarter-acre lots that are paying $12,000 a year in property taxes. $12,000 a year. I myself, on my little third of an acre in Arlington, pay close to $4,000 a year in property tax. That's why they don't like you living out there. That's why there's a stigma. Because you're you're leaving the system of their support. You're, you're ceasing your production into their system, and you're taking it into your own. And then there's the agricultural zoning trap. Oh, see, we take care of the farmers. You can have a big farm. That's fine. You can have 80 acres. You can have 160 acres, Mr. Farmer. You get ag zoning. We give you a huge tax break on your property taxes. But a guy running a farm that big, it puts him in a situation where even with that tax break, He's still being taxed so highly. The only way he can afford to keep the land, he's got to put it all into production. He's got to farm his brains out. And he's got to grow nice, long, pretty rows of crops. He's got to spray, spray, spray. It's almost impossible. It's almost impossible financially today to have a 160-acre farm and use permaculture and, and, and organic and manual techniques. It almost cannot be done. The way it has to be done is you break it up into 16 10-acre lots, and you have 16 different families doing it, and everybody owns their own little piece, and it's still tough. So even the big break we give to our farmers, in a way, has led us to a point where we have this farmer production mentality, and more and more of the small farms are being gobbled up by the big farms, and we're going into nothing but commercial agriculture and all the evil that goes with it. Genetically modified seeds, spraying Roundup on the food that we eat, with Roundup-ready soy and all this other crap, destruction of our biosphere, destruction of our diversity. We're down to 1% of the diversity that we had with plant life in in agriculture 100 years ago. 1% left. That's what this has brought us. Because we've lost the value of owning land. We've destroyed our soil. We've taken this beautiful soil. This country fed the world at one time. We became the agricultural leader of the planet. And yeah, the, the dust bowl hurt. That was one area. But we've depleted the soil from sea to shining sea, folks. Why? Because we keep dumping chemical fertilizer on it over and over and over. We're treating the soil like a sponge. Like a sterile sponge. And all we have to do is we'll dump more chemicals and we'll balance the pH. And we just, our little ag rep comes out every year and tells me what to buy. And I spray the soil with it. I dump it on the soil. And that's all that I have to worry about. Organic matter, screw it. That's what we've turned our soil into. And we've taken some of the most fertile land in the world and we've turned it fallow. While people live on tiny postage stamp lots in the city and pay insane property taxes to do it. Because we've lost the value of owning land. We don't understand it anymore. So if you're going to own land, what do you do today? Well, 
I say the first thing that you do is that you look for land with the concept of will it produce for me first. In other words, when I look at land today, I'm not saying, well, I want to put in a commercial orchard or a commercial small farm or even even a small-scale operation like the Dervaises. So you want to do that? Fine. It can get there. But the first concern is, can I make this produce for, for myself and my family? And can I make it work for barter? Can I find a community where whatever I don't grow, somebody else does, and we can exchange goods? Under the radar, out of the system, no taxation, no money. I have apples, you have figs, here's a basket for a basket. Great. I'll tell you what, I have way more, way more cucumbers than I can use. Tons of them. I don't like the pickle. You like the pickle. You don't have any cucumbers. I'll give you two baskets of cucumbers. You pickle them. You give me half, you keep half. There's so many things that can do. You know how many older people there are out there that know canning and pickling, but they don't have time and energy for a garden anymore? But they'll, they'll do the last piece, that putting up part. Go find them. Make that deal. I'll bring you 100 pounds of green beans. You can have 50 of it. But put it up for me. Learn to do it yourself, too. But build community that way. That's such a cool way to do things. Find that old lady that's really good at making jams and jellies. Take the kids out. Just pick as many blackberries as you can in the spring. Bring them all to her. Let her keep half of what she produces. Ask her to teach you how to do it, too. So you can do it yourself. So the skill's not lost. So that when you're old, somebody can take over your role and you can take over her role. That's the way to start doing these things. The next thing I say, bring in the beasts. Bring in the beasts. In other words, have livestock. You got more than an acre, you got room for some livestock. You can do chickens on a quarter of an acre. But if you got an acre, you can do some cool stuff. You know? A few chickens, maybe a few ducks, maybe some pygmy goats. I don't know. Whatever you want, whatever you like. I think ducks are one of the coolest creatures in the world for a little small scale farm. Or even just a little small scale homestead. Duck eggs are amazing to eat. They're extremely nutritious. And ducks, I'll tell you what, I think ducks have a little bit better of a personality than chickens. And they're really good at getting rid of garden pests. And they're less likely to eat your garden than a chicken is, and more likely to take care of things like slugs and worms and things like that. you got snail problems, get some ducks. They'll eat every single one of them. They don't need a lot, a, little, a lot of water. A little pond here, a little pond there. Geese. But bring in the beasts. Make them part of what you're doing. That is how you make a property self-sufficient. You don't have to worry so much about where you get your fertilizer if you have a hutch of rabbits and some ducks running around and some chickens running around. They'll produce plenty for you. And with that type of arrangement, you can grow a lot of the feed that they need. You don't have to worry about food for them. You can easily, on an acre, keep a few rabbits, maybe two does in one buck or four does in one buck or four does in two bucks, and keep a meat production going. You can easily grow enough food to provide at least half, if not more, of what they need to eat. And you can be self-sufficient that way. Learn to do more with less. I, I did some shows recently on you know smaller homesteads. People ask me all the time, how much land is enough? You'd be amazed what you could do with two to four acres. If you want 50 acres, if you want 1,000 acres, I'm not telling you not to do it. But ask yourself, why do you want it? Do you want to clear it all and farm it all? If you do, fine. 
Go be a small farmer. Be an independent businessman. It's a tough life, but God, we need people like you. But for many people, they don't want 100 acres so that they can clear it. They want 100 acres, they want to leave 90 of it wooded. They want a forest in their backyard. They want to hunt, maybe fish on their own property. They want to hike. They want to feel secluded. Well, can you find land where maybe you can only buy a couple acres, but you're surrounded by state forest or, you know, uh, engineer land, Corps of Engineer land, or any place that's like just can't be developed? You know, part of what we like about where we're at in Arkansas is, you know, you can carve these little five-acre homesteads out, but the pieces in between that nobody's settled, you can't really do much with them. It's too steep. That's just one way to deal with that. There's a lot of different type of topographic situations where, you know, you you won't have anybody building there because it just isn't practical to build there. So look for things like that. Keep your taxes low, folks, when you're buying land. If you want to loan land in the town, in the city, you got a job, it pays the bills, you want to keep it for 10 years, 20 years, fine. But find that little homestead out in the country. Unless it's just not what you want. If it's not what you want, fine. I'm not telling you how to live. But if you want it, find it now. It's not going to be cheaper 20 years from now. Three, four hours away from you where you live, there's some place, somewhere, with a nice little plot of land that you can claim now and start working on now. It could be your vacation retreat. Get a little RV. Don't leave it there. Somebody will steal it. Get a little RV, a pickup truck. Tow it up there whenever you go up there. Go ahead and get power brought in. Or solar solar power your RV. But I'd go ahead and get power brought in. The grid's always useful. You don't want to depend on it, but it's nice to have. Get a well put in. Start planting permanent crops. Put in some irrigation systems that are automated. So you can put in things like trees and bushes and vines now. Ten years from now, five years from now, when you get out of the city, you have food production already in progress. What happens to the food that that, that you're not there to harvest? Let the birds eat it. Let the deer eat it. Who cares? You're concerned about the plants. You're creating a wild system that's self-sustaining. Look for the land now. I'm telling you, I think in the future it's going to be the most valuable commodity in America again. I think we're going to go back in many ways to being a nation of farmers. We're going to have to. The world can't feed itself anymore. We're one of the few places that still has a lot of land available that can be farmed. We can turn our suburban neighborhoods into micro farms. The Dervaises have proved it possible. We can have thousands and thousands of people doing half of what they do. We'd make a huge difference in our needs to be dependent on others. But understand that even just from a straight-up financial side, land ownership is the way to go. More people have become millionaires in America because of the land that they've owned and they've sold and they've traded and they've held than any other thing in the world. Flat out. More millionaires made by land and real estate than anything else in the world. Because land has an underlying value that will always be there. It never goes away. Even gold, as much as I'm a proponent of owning some gold and some silver, maybe some platinum and palladium, all these different you know, hard assets, even those things, their value is contingent upon society's whims at the time. Gold can go up and down relative to currency. Gold really serves no purpose, folks. When, it, when you come right down to it, I'm not saying I don't want any. I got some. I'd have some if I were you too. 
because that's how society's worked for years and years and years. But when you think about it, other than jewelry, what is the purpose for gold? You can't eat it. It's, it's, it's almost completely unused industrially. At least silver has, silver, platinum, palladium all have industrial uses. There's very little industrial use of gold. It's ornamental. It's a trinket. It's pretty. Shit hits the fan, you'll be able to use it for barter eventually. But shit hits the fan, land will take care of you now. There's never been a time in history where land has not been considered a valuable commodity, ever. People, you know what wars get fought over? Land. Terraforma. Where is the border? What rights do I have inside the border, outside the border? Really, just about every war has been fought over land, folks. Now you can say, well, it's religion and the Crusades, it, it's politics and modern warfare, it's religion today. Uh-uh. It's about the land. It's about the property. If the property wasn't there, there'd be no war to be fought. The war has to be fought somewhere. When that war is being fought, the ground underneath the feet of the soldier on both sides of the battle. That's what's being fought over. That piece of ground. You really have to think about that. I don't care what resource comes out of that land. Without the land, there is no resource. My next piece of advice, own more than one piece of land. I'm doing it right now. I've got the place in Arkansas. I've got the place here in Arlington. I get this question all the time. Jack, when you sell your place in Arlington and you move to Arkansas, Will you then find a new bug-out location since your bug-out locations become your primary residence? And my answer to that, folks, I'm already looking. I'm already window shopping. I'm not serious about it yet. I'll never act on it unless I just find some deal that's like, oh, my God, i got to do this, right? Every once in a while, if you shop, you'll find deals. You'll find deals sometimes where you're like, I can get this deal done because it's such a good deal. I can get funding for it no matter what because there's no risk to whoever I'm getting the funding from or I'm willing to pull my own savings to make this happen or what have you. So unless I find that deal, I'm not seriously shopping. But what I'm doing is I'm looking on, I'm browsing land. I'm browsing land an hour or, you know, to, to two hours away from where our place in Arkansas is, which will be basically a deer a deer camp for me, a hunting camp. But I'll make improvements on it as well. Land is one of the best things in the world to have in your portfolio. Now, am I saying not to invest in land in the city? I'm not going to, because I don't love that investment. But it's a great investment if you do it right, if you're smart. I don't know much about that investment. I know I've been a landlord, and I hated it. I watched my property treated poorly by people that I trusted to treat it right. And I don't want to be a landlord, but there's a lot of money to be made there if that's what you want to do. But for me, when I say own multiple pieces, I say as long as you're in the city, own at least one little place in the country. I don't even care if it has a house on it. Own the dirt. The land is the value. We're not talking about houses today. We're talking about the dirt, the terra firma. And if you move out to that place, start looking for another place because you need so much less out of your second place. If I could find, I don't know, 10, 20 acres somewhere up in the uh, Washita Mountains, I don't need a road going back. There could be a dirt trail. I don't ever have any visions of uh, building a true house. I might build a little shack up there. Probably just use the RV system for that. I don't care if it has utilities. I don't care if it has power. I'd really like it to have water and a well. I probably would pay to have a well put in if it's possible. If not, I would like surface water. That's about it. 
Because that's going to be just a little slice of heaven. And yes, if we had to run somewhere, we have a place that we own and we have the rights to keep other people off of because it's ours. And the less developed it is, the less I can be taxed on it. But in the future, as we move forward, financially, just purely financially, the more valuable that becomes. And there's, there's deals still out there, folks. There's dirt cheap land like that out there yet. You know, $1,000 an acre, sometimes less. 10 acres, $10,000. 20 acres for $20,000. You can't buy a freaking good car for $20,000 anymore, no. And if you buy a $20,000 car new, in two years it's worth $12,000 if you took perfect care of it and if you only put about 10,000 miles a year on it. What's that land worth in 20 years? It's such a better... I'd rather drive a jalopy car for the rest of my life and put all the money that people put into their cars and their SUVs in the land ownership than put them into vehicles. Those vehicles become rust buckets. They break down. Your new car today is tomorrow's jalopy. So drive your jalopy today and own your land today. It's the way I see it. Not for everybody. Again, I just give you information. But this is why I put such a premium on this. Because I understand it. I understand it intrinsically at its core. That that's the st- when people talk about gold being a store of value, hey man, look, that's part of playing the game. That's why you own some gold. But a store of value, land is the store of value. Where are the billionaires putting their money today? In agriculture, in the land ownership. They're buying either farms, or Jim Rogers will tell you, I'm not a farmer, and I'm a terrible farmer. So I'm buying the output and the control of the output of farms. But their money's going in the land. The thing is that the little guy can still play this game. The little guy can still play this game. Now, I know there's people out there that are hurting right now, that they're unemployed, or they're worried still about losing their job, they're hanging on by a thread, and you can't make reckless purchases. Don't just go out and buy something because I said that it's valuable. But if you can make it work, it is the safest place for your money. And the more rural, and the less developed, and the more just a piece of dirt, as long as you're paying honest, fair market value, the safer the investment. Because so many of these houses, they, oh, I bought my house for four hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars, and now it's only worth two seventy-five, and I'm stuck in it for twenty years. That's because your house was never worth four hundred seventy-five thousand dollars. That's because your house today isn't worth two hundred seventy-five thousand dollars. Because if you pick that house up and you move it down here to Texas, that house is worth about one hundred fifty thousand dollars. And the guy that bought it for one hundred fifty thousand dollars, when you bought yours, that looks just like it for. Four 475 right now even with the down market he can sell it for 140 145 because it wasn't artificially inflated it's the house the community the bs freaking hoas the city and the, the trendy crap that artificially inflates the value of a house you tell me the difference in pricing uh, in fact let me put it this way i sold a 2,000 square foot house, and it was on about an acre, but it was only an acre in Pennsylvania. We moved down here. I bought a 2,000 square foot, much newer home on a third of an acre, and when I bought it, the 
price that I sold at and the price that I that I that I purchased the new house at were so different. It was so much cheaper to buy a house down here than what I sold the house for up there. It threw a red flag off with the lender. I had to write a letter to my mortgage company explaining why I was spending so much less money. They thought, well, this is a new guy must be in financial trouble. You know, we're looking at his last year's financial numbers, and uh, he's got to be in financial trouble to be spending this much less money. And my letter was basically, I need a 2,000-square-foot house. They cost this much in Pennsylvania. They cost this much less in Texas. What's the real difference there? The house is basically the same house. Honestly, the house here is a better house. It's better built. It's maintenance-free. It's newer. Everything about it's better. But it costs $60,000 less money. Why? Because of the artificial inflation of the community. And that's what took the beating in this market correction. But what didn't lose value? The dirt. Dirt has pretty much held its value right through this this recession. I was. I, how do I know that? Because I've been looking at rural property for 15 years. Almost three to four times a week, I get onto places like unitedcountry.com and I look for land. I don't necessarily look for houses. A lot of times I actually look for 20, 30, 40 acres of land with no house. That's what I'm actually looking for. I don't even want a house there. Or I'm looking for it with like some beat up old single white trailer. The, like the best thing you could do when you find, when you get there is smash it down and burn it into a heap. Because the only reason I like that is because I know, well, then there's a way to get water and electric. Right? So that's, that's all that that little shack means to me. And I've watched the price of that land slowly go up over the last 15 years. And what I've seen it do in the last three years, level off. I haven't seen it go down. The properties that I look at, the window shopping I do, property costs about the same as it did three years ago. Now I look for a house for sale. You know, in, in, in Connecticut or California or Florida, oh, their values have gone in half. Absolutely. Why did those properties in these rural areas not take the hit? Because the value is based on the real value of the property. It's true real estate. All right? It's true real property. That's the store of value I'm talking about. And I'm going to wrap up there today. I think I've gone long enough, and this rain is really scaring the hell out of me, honestly, folks. So I know I didn't tell you a lot about what to do. I'm telling you how to think today. Because it will change the way you shop for land. You'll think differently, and you'll make smarter decisions. You'll also start asking yourself, how am I going to do this? That's all you have to do. If you start looking at land and having a dream for yourself and having that piece of land one day produced for you, and you're asking how, you'll find the answer. But I promise you, if you go into a cubicle every day, stay myopic and put that off till the golden years, the odds are you'll be dead or too old to enjoy it by the time you get the opportunity to make it happen. Or the price of the property will be out of your reach. Because that type of property is the next gold mine in the investment world. Because that's where we're going to revalue everything in this country. We're too deep in debt. The country's screwed financially. We're $100 trillion in the hole between now and 2050. And that's being kind. That's the nicest assessment, $100 trillion in all. The only thing we have in this nation to offset $100 trillion is under your feet right now. The dirt. That's it. 
That's why it's going to become the commodity to own. I'm telling you to grab a piece of it now. Build your dream on it now. Station yourself there now. Reinforce it now. Build community there now. Build people like you there now. So that as they start trying to grab it up and gobble it up, it's not you standing alone. It's a hundred of your best friends and family saying, no, 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 you're not taking this, this is ours. Because that's the only way we're going to be able to hold on to it. And with that, I am going to wrap up. I'm going to remind you again, please go vote for us. Podcast of the Year, general category. You can do that at podcastawards.com. Check out our gear shop. Sister Wolf and TW are working their butts off to make that place cool for you. They're coming up with some cool items. Just go to store.thesurvivalpodcast.com or just go to survivalpodcast.com. You see a great big TSB gear store right there in the center column. Check it out today. And uh, above all, keep on building that better life. Keep working hard. Keep making things the way you want them. If you don't have the vision for land that I do, find your vision, crystallize it, and create it the way that you want it. Just like you have to build your own emergency plan, just like you have to build your own lifestyle plan, if you want land ownership to be part of your life, you build it your way. What I value and what you value may be completely different, but the means to get there is the same. And I'm telling you and I'm promising you, smart, logical, well-funded, not deeply in debt, not stupidly acquired land, buying it the right way with the way that you can make it affordable for yourself is the safest investment you'll ever make. And it is something you can hand down from generation to generation. Because we ain't got no lords and ladies here and maybe some of them people up on the hill think that that's where they are. But I'll tell you what, I still have hope there's going to be a real awakening over the next 10 years. But during that 10 years, I'm not waiting for it to happen. I'm going out and claiming my piece. You go out and claim yours, and let's take a stand for the thing that made this nation great, the ability to own a piece of dirt and say it is mine. And I decide what gets done with it. I decide who comes on it, and I decide who the hell stays off of it. That's the private property rights that made America the great nation that it is. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.